Well, folks, I'll tell you what. Thank you, Cody. Excuse me. We're, we're uh, I'll get it. Here we go. Um, so today, right now, anticipation. I want you to think about anticipation, all right? Um, and I want you to think about what is it that you right now are anticipating the most. Now, I, I, I need you to participate here. What I don't need, I don't need a long drawn out. I just need, what are you anticipating the most? All right, who's, who's gonna get us rolling? Going home. Going home, you mean to heaven. All right, good, I was gonna say you just got here, I can't, all right, yeah, all right. All right, and I just started, it's gonna be a while. All right, good. What else? What are you anticipating the most this morning? Come on. Hell, wh who, what? The rapture. the rapture. Who said that? What? Who's that? Don. All right. I'm, I'm just looking faces. I see no lips moving. Good. All right, the rapture. All right, what else? Joe. Loving Jesus more. All right, you anticipate loving Jesus more. Okay, who else? Come on. Daughter, all right, a wedding. All right, daughter's wedding. Mike? Retirement. Retirement. Whoa, yeah. All right, somebody else? Getting what? Getting healed. Getting healed. Yes. All right, yes. All right, yes. All right, Lisa, thank you. Yeah. Who else? Come on. I didn't hear Vacation. All right. That's a good one. Our next senior trip. <laughs> yes. And if I go, I'm anticipating not getting COVID. All right. Yes. All right. Elisa. I hope my dad feels better. All right. You hope your dad feels Oh, we have a baby coming. All right. Yeah. All right. And Mike, look at this, folks. We've been praying for Mike's stories here this morning. All right. Yeah, all right, so, yes, so we think about anticipation, right, and uh, I don't know what it may be, you've heard some things this morning, and, and there may be as many different things that are being anticipated as, as we have people here, but I want to share with you this morning as we think about anticipation, it could be, how about this one, Krispy Kreme Donuts? You say, oh, now you're making me hungry. And I skipped breakfast this morning. All right, well, it might be that. We heard this one uh, from Rhonda. Hey, a wedding, right? Might be that. Somebody said vacation. Here it is. Oh, this is for Jane and I. This is like our favorite place to go. I am so anticipating. This is the Jersey Shore. And uh, I know some people go to all different places and and I'm not going to go, but man, we love the shore, anticipate going to the shore, being there. And by the way, that's like the beach or the ocean. It's when you, and you live in New Jersey and it's the Jersey shore, it's called the shore, not the ocean. Just if you didn't know that, now you do, right? All right, good. And we're not talking about Jersey shore out where Mitch and Emily kind of close to where they were there. So that's a different Jersey. I don't know how that's Jersey Shore in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> but anyway, so there you have it. So as we think about this, you know, it might be, uh, it might be school starting. It's not far away. Now, my, my grandkids, uh, three of them live down in North Carolina. And I said, hey, guys, when does school start? 
they start again August 9th. You guys think you got it bad? And by the way, they did not get out May 9th, all right? So August 9th, they start school, but, but you may be looking forward to that. Maybe it's the first time, kindergarten or whatever. Fall sports could be. New job. Maybe you got a new job coming down the road. You're excited about that. It might be a new car. Might be having a baby. We did see that here this morning. And uh, it might be the empty nest. I remember when Jane and I said, oh, you're going to be the empty nest. It's so hard. We're like, yes, woohoo! you know, but it's not always that. We miss our kids and grandkids, you know how that goes, but boy, we like that, whatever it may be. So when you think about anticipation, how would you define the word? Now, it's one of those words that we know really well and everybody knows what it means, but I came across this from vocabulary.com. Anticipation is excitement waiting eagerly for something you know is going to happen. Something you know is going to happen, right? And, and I think that's a critical part that we're going to build on here this morning. Something you know is going to happen. I want you to remember that. And this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And uh, the text is really verses 1 to 11, but we're just pretty much going to settle in on verses 7 to 11. Verses 7 to 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. And when you get that um, in your Bibles, that's also found in page 852. There's a Bible, at least if you use one of our Bibles, you don't have them with you, under the chair rack in front of you, in that Bible, page 852. But 1 Peter chapter 4 and uh, verses 7 to 11, I want to read those for you. So will you follow along with me, please, as I read. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert. Of sober and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Uh, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Now, did you see it? Did you see the reason for anticipation what is it that peter is anticipating it's right there in verse 7 right in verse 7 as it begins the end of all things is near the end of all things is near and and peter's anticipating because you say the end of all things is near what's he saying well he goes on, the very next word is therefore, therefore, and we would say, uh, therefore what? What in the world? Well, Jesus is coming. That's what therefore, therefore, and, and the end of all things is near, Jesus is coming, therefore, and, and the idea is we need to live differently. Therefore what? We need to live differently. 
And Peter goes on and he talks about some of that different living, what it looks like. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But I want you to know that often when we read, especially in the New Testament, about the coming of Jesus again, about the Lord's appearing, we often see uh, uh, mentioned with that a call to action. Because Jesus is coming, we need to live a certain way. We need to do something. We need to do something specific. We're going to look at some of those things. But whatever it is, the coming of Jesus, the anticipation that the end is near, that Jesus is coming again, ought to motivate us to live differently. You know, we all talk about, in fact, you may have some folks, some of you said you're anticipating the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's great. And we ought to do that. But it's more than just anticipation. That anticipation ought to lead to motivation for changed behavior, for living differently in these difficult days. And uh, if you'll just look back to chapter 1, this whole business of the return of Jesus, chapter 1, and it's throughout the book of 1 Peter. We've been seeing that. You go down to verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, we're going to see those words in our text in chapter 4 this morning, but with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you, what? When Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We looked at that back a couple of months when we talked about this text. When Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming, as obedient children, and here's the action, the call to action. He says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but, here it is, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Therefore, because Jesus is going to be revealed, because the end of all things is near. Because Jesus is coming. Peter says in chapter 1, be holy. Live a holy life. As we get to chapter 4, as we look down through the text, we're going to find out that it causes us to change our behavior, to live differently. Now, I've got some scriptures on the screen that you can look at and write down and, and see what I'm talking about. If you were to go to Romans 13, 11, James 5, verses 7, 8, and 9. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, we would find out that because it's talking about Jesus appearing, that fact that he's coming again, the end of all things is near. It's do something, live for God, change, what, change your habit, have a lifestyle that is in keeping with what you say when you say you're anticipating the return of Jesus. It needs to show up in the way we live now. And so as we talk about that, when we anticipate that Jesus is coming to take us to heaven, we ought to be motivated to live differently. I mean, it just, did you get that? When we anticipate that Jesus is coming to take us to heaven, we should be motivated to live differently. Peter's reminding his audience, that includes you and me today. That because the end of all things is near, there is a lifestyle that ought to characterize those of us who know and love Jesus, those of us who are anticipating his return. Because his return is near, there's a lifestyle that ought to characterize you and I who know Jesus. 
And so I see in these verses, as we're going to look this morning, three characteristics of those who live in anticipation of Jesus' return. Three characteristics of those who live in anticipation of Jesus' return. And, and the thing, as we walk through this, that you need to be thinking about, are they true of me today? If I believe Jesus is coming again, and one of the things we said about anticipation is it's looking forward with excitement to something that we know is going to happen. Right? I know that in September, Jane and I are going to the shore. I know that. I have a deposit down. That's how I know that. Right? Now, there could be a hurricane. There always are that time of year, but that's who knows. But when we say this in anticipation of Jesus' return, we know his coming back. It ought to cause us to live differently. So there are three characteristics. Number one, if you are anticipating the return of the Lord, you ought to be characterized by prayer. Characterized by prayer. Look at it. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Be alert and of sober mind. Now, Peter isn't saying pray with alertness, pray with a sober mind. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that we need to be alert and we need to live that way. We need to live being alert. We need to live with a sober mind. He's not telling his audience how to pray He's telling them how to live so that they can pray. Did you get that? If you look at the text, it's very clear. So because Jesus is coming, we need to be alert and of sober mind. Now, I'm not going to take the time to try to differentiate between those two different words because they're very similar. Uh, they have pretty much the same meaning, the same understanding. Peter has given us a, a double challenge there. And what's involved there is that the idea of, of this is that we would be awake, aware, alert, that we would be level-headed, that we would be clear thinking. When you hear the word sober, what do you think of? Drunkenness, right? And they go together. And so, obviously, we're talking about somebody, when we hear being sober, free from the influence of intoxicants. Now, that may be alcohol, it may be drugs of some sort, whatever it might be, but we're free from the influence. Listen, folks, there's a whole lot more out there than alcohol and drugs that can be influencing in us and keep us from focusing on what we ought to be focusing on. And when we're not focused, when we're not living a sober and alert life, when we're not living a life that's awake and aware and alert of what God is doing, when we're not living in a spirit-controlled way, when we're intoxicated by the busyness of life, when we're intoxicated by the pleasures of life, when we've got all kinds of things in our minds that distract us from the fact that Jesus is coming again, that the end of all things is near, we're not going to be able to pray because he says, be alert and of sober mind. Why? So that you may pray. So that you may pray with a clear, level-headed intent. You can't pray and probably, hear this, won't pray if you're not thinking clearly. We're not talking here about always we think sin, 
always sin are the things that intoxicate our thinking. Some of it is. But there are some good things, some things in and of themselves that aren't wrong. Pleasurable things. Vacation can be one, right? But if you take 52 weeks of vacation, I don't know anybody who does that. Mel, that's what retirement. Mike, you said retirement. You're anticipating, all right? Well, there you go. Now, but uh, as you think about that, we're talking about things that aren't necessarily wrong in themselves, but keep us from praying and spirit-directed thinking. I don't know how many years ago, I think probably 10, 11 years, uh, our oldest son, Luke, graduated from the police academy down in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, we were there for the graduation. And as we were walking in, all the officers that were graduating and to be down front and, and go through the whole thing came out of this room as we walked by. And the first officer out of the room was an officer in a wheelchair. And so later on after graduation and we, things were settled down and I had an opportunity to talk to Luke. I said, Luke, what was, uh, who's, the, who's the guy in the wheelchair? What was that all about? He said they had him speak to us because he'd been shot in the head. And that's why he was a paraplegic. That's why he was in a wheelchair. And as they were at a situation the, um, through the wall, they weren't, he wasn't paying attention. And he told these new officers, these graduating officers, he was telling them, I lost focus. I wasn't thinking clearly. I was thinking about a baseball game. I was thinking about my team. And I wasn't focused on the situation at hand. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't have a level head at that point. And that's why I got shot. And that's why he's in a wheelchair today. Whoa. Talk about a challenge to a group of brand new police officers who have yet to serve a day They've gone through the academy, but now they're getting ready to go out and be in cars and wherever else, and they're told, you better pay attention. You better be sober and alert, and you better be in your right mind. You better be thinking clearly. You better be focused. And Peter is telling the believers there, he's saying, with life all around us, what we need to make sure we're doing is being sober, alert, so that we can pray. That's what Peter says. We can't allow our minds and our hearts to be all garbled up with all kinds of stuff. Ever since he told me that story, every morning I pray for Luke. I pray for God's hand of protection on him as he goes out into the city of Charlotte. And I pray that God would keep him awake and aware and alert that he wouldn't just take things for granted, that it wouldn't just become a routine, that he wouldn't lose focus. And folks, we need to pray that for one another. Peter is saying, just pray, but you've got to keep yourselves sober. You've got to keep your mind clear, not intoxicated by things that will cause us to not think about God. That is how we are to live, spiritually alert and sober so we can pray because as we're going to see in chapter 5 in a few weeks the devil satan like a roaring lion is walking about looking for somebody to devour all of us who know jesus he's out to ruin our lives folks now i'm not going to preach that message we'll get there right but we need to be alert secondly 
Not just characterized by prayer, but characterized by love. Look at verse 8. Above all, Peter says, above all, most importantly, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. You say, we've talked about that. Yes, we did back in chapter 1. Peter said to the believers, hey, you do already have a brotherly love, a family love. Why? Because you got saved. So there is that that comes into your life when you trust Jesus Christ. But then he says, he says, so now that you have that brotherly love, love one another deeply from the heart. Because there's a difference in saying, yes, I do love somebody and showing it. And what we read here, right, is Peter says, above all, love each other deeply. This is the agape love. This is the God kind of love. This isn't the brotherly love. This is God's love. And he's saying, you model the love of God towards one another. You love each other deeply. This is a self-sacrificing kind of love. It's a love that gives See, it's one thing to say, I love you. It's another thing to show it, to give. That's love. The kind of love that doesn't expect anything in return. That's critical, folks. That's how Jesus loves us. We sometimes fall into that trap of loving somebody because of what they do for us. We call it love because of. I love because you are beautiful. I love because you are rich. There's love if. I love you if you make me feel happy. I love you if you give me a nice home. And we could go on, but those aren't, that's not love that Peter's talking about here because God doesn't love that way. God loves, period. That's why we read John 3.16. John 3, this love cannot be hidden. It shows itself in humility the way we treat one another. When he says love each other deeply, he means fervently. It can mean constantly, continuously. It means it, what it is, it's the horse at a full gallop. Like the Preakness or the Belmont Stakes or the Kentucky Derby or whatever those three big horse races are. And those horses get out there and they run around that track. Man, they are moving. They're not thinking about slowing down. That's the kind of love. That's the way we love one another deeply. It's the kind of love that is exhibited by an athlete when he's crossing the finish line or the goal line or whatever it may be. Now... It's interesting because he goes on in this, describing this love. He says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. You may say, oh, does that mean that we have to sweep sin under the rug? If I love somebody and it, that love covers over a multitude of sins, I just ignore that sin. I don't have that hard conversation with whoever it may be. Our kids, our spouses, our friends, whoever, we have that hard conversation with somebody about sin in their life, and because we love them, we just don't have that conversation and just say, you know what, forget it. No, that's not what it means. When it says love covers a multitude of sins, really it's talking about the issue of forgiveness. This kind of love doesn't sweep sin under the rug, but it forgives sin. Like Jesus did. 
Ephesians 5.32, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Forgiving one another. How? Even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. That's the kind of love. That's the forgiveness. Folks, forgiveness is a great need in the church today. Because we can so easily hold on to an unforgiving spirit. Love doesn't easily take offense. Love does not hold a grudge. Did you get that? Love endures injustice. Love handles unfair treatment. As you've all been taught or taught somebody, your kids, maybe parents, or your parents taught you that, life isn't fair, right? And we need to learn to deal with the injustice. Why? Because we love. And that's what's involved here as we think about forgiveness. The end of all things is near. We better not have an unforgiving spirit when Jesus comes again. Now, we won't pay for that sin, but because that was paid for at the cross. But as we think about this, unforgiveness, I was reading the book, and I want to recommend to you, I was going to put it on the slide and forgot to do that, but a book, Choosing Forgiveness, by Nancy DeMoss Wogelmuth. I'd highly recommend a great book on forgiveness. Excellent. And in that tells the story of forgiveness, but there's this quote that they don't know who said it, but this is the quote. Quite a statement. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. Now, if that doesn't put unforgiveness in, in its place, wow. Drinking poison and hoping someone else will die, that's what happens when your heart gets bitter. And the longer we hold on to unforgiveness, the more bitter we become. And we always feel like we're justified, right, in our unforgiving spirit, and we're never, never justified. There's not a thing that you or I could come up with that says, but you don't know what happened to me. Or, but you don't know what this person did or what that person said. I may not, but guess what? Jesus does, and guess what Jesus did when he went to the cross? There wasn't one sin, not a sin. Nobody could say, but you don't know. No, Jesus did, and he died for us anyway. Wow, and that's how we are to forgive. That takes love. But love is also here, above all, love each other deeply. It involves hospitality. Look at verse 9. Peter says there in verse 9, he says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Wow, hospitality, that's something, right? Having people into your home, housing them, maybe letting them spend the night, feeding them. We had a family that fed our missionaries last week. Praise God. That's hospitality. And, and as we think about this business of hospitality, listen, understand this, that back when Peter was writing in the first century, <laughs> there was no Holiday Inn Express. Right? There was no Rosario's Pizza. And, and, and hospitality was a significant need, especially for believers who were traveling, carrying the gospel to places that didn't know 
Understand this, there may have been the need to provide hospitality for those who were being persecuted and, and running and hiding or moving from one place to another because of the persecution and they needed a place to stay. There were those who were persecuted who showed hospitality to believers because they were believers. That happens, that's happening in the world today. It's happening in India today. It's happening in China today. You help out a, a, a believer... You could be persecuted too. So as we understand, hospitality, those uh, who show, hospitality is hard. Those who show hospitality, Peter says, and when you do it, don't grumble about it. Because hospitality is demanding. It takes time. It takes our resources. And, and we, may, we may need to be showing people the love of God through being hospitable. Providing housing for them, providing meals for whatever it may be. And sometimes that takes our resources and it's like, man, what's wrong? I, I keep giving. I can't afford this. And that's where God takes care of us. Love one another deeply. Thirdly, the person who is anticipating the end of all things being near, that Jesus is coming again is characterized by serving. It's characterized by prayer, right? Characterized by love. Characterized thirdly by serving. Look at verses 10 and 11. Peter says, verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. There it is. That's pretty clear. Serve others. Do for others. That's love in action. Serving one another. Folks, I, I, I got to tell you, I am so thrilled with you as a church. I mean, we are on a roll, I think. A few weeks back, we had Dick Schomburg's funeral. And uh, you folks stepped up to the plate and provided. You provided food and put on a meal and showed care. And, and Tim and Amy, I don't think, are here this morning. But Dick's daughter, Amy, and her husband, Tim, have been here regularly. And they so have appreciated the love that this church has shown. People have served them sacrificially. This Friday, a lot of you probably saw the, the email and the uh, remind text that went out. Hey, we got a shower going on down here, and we, don't, we didn't know we had a shower room. But we did, and we had an air conditioning pipe, I guess, some kind of pipe. And uh, Sylvia came and got, Glenn, we got water all over the floor. And I went, she, we walked over, and there's Scott standing in the midst of the shower holding on to this pipe. And water is everywhere. The floor, the carpet, the stuff inside the closet. And we put out word, hey, we need help. And Scott's on the phone with Charles Edwards, and he's trying to get us going. And, and so we're getting some things, and Scott's sending pictures. And uh, it's just, you know, and, and then we, get, we finally get the water shut off. And then there's cleanup, and, and all kinds of folks showed up. We had to finally put the word out, say, hey, we're good. Thank you. We don't need anybody. Thank you for coming, those of you who did. It's just amazing. Way to work day. Back at the beginning of the summer. Here, one Saturday morning. And man, do we get a lot. I mean, I think we had 40 or 50 people here, right? 
And we were weeding and spreading mulch and cleaning windows and moving stuff and, and vacuuming and all the it was folks, you showed you served your church, one another, and God. Thank you. That's what Peter's talking about. We need to serve one another. But I want you to know this. It's more than just those kinds of things. Many of you have asked, how can we help Mike and Julie's story? Mike had surgery, and he's off of work for a while, and people wonder, how can we serve them? Wow, that's what we're talking about. And Peter says here, he says, though, verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received. Gift? What are you talking about? Peter's talking about spiritual gifts, gifts from the Holy Spirit, a special God-given ability to serve effectively. That's what it is. If you remember when we went through 1 Corinthians, we spent a lot of time talking about what those spiritual gifts are and how they work. And, but we know that spiritual gifts are given not for our good, but they're given for the good of the church, for God's people. And Peter's saying, you need to serve with, use whatever gift you've received to serve others. And then he says, as faithful stewards. Why does he add that? What's that got to do with it? We've been, we've been given each at least one spiritual gift, one special God-given ability to serve God effectively, to do something within the body of Christ, the church. He says, do it as faithful servants, stewards. What's a steward? A steward is a manager. A steward is given a trust, and he's supposed to manage that trust. He's supposed to manage that, in this case, we're given a gift as stewards, we're given an ability to serve God. We are to manage that gift, that ability, to use that ability within the church. It's not to serve others. That's where some people get so off on some of the different spiritual gifts because we think it's all about making me feel I serve and I get benefit. Well, if somebody else is serving, I will be benefited. But my gift is not for me, it's for you. Your gift is not for you, it's for us. And so when he says as stewards, he's talking about we are to be managers. We are to be responsible for the God-given ability that he's given us because we're going, to hold, we're going to be held accountable one day. And it's critical that we understand that God never gave us a gift to keep and do nothing with, to put on the shelf at home and leave it there. It's not the way it works. And <clears throat> when Peter talks about Using that gift as stewards built into that idea is an accountability thing. When Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account for the things that are good or useless. The word sometimes translation says bad, and not bad in the sense of sin, bad in the sense of worthless, useless. And if we've been spending our time and our lives doing things, but it's of no good to anybody, that's useless. And we will give an account of how we are using the gift. That's what a steward does. He uses it for God. It's not ours. It's God's, and we're to manage it for him. It's like some of you have financial planners that take care of your retirement funds. And you give money to that guy and that, or that man or woman, and, and they invest that so that there will be a return on your investment. So that one day when you retire, you'll have more money than you gave them. That's what an investor, that's what a financial planner, that's a steward. It's not their money. It's your money and my money, but they manage it. And if they did nothing with it, we'd be pretty ticked. 
How do you think God feels when we do nothing? Now, I, I, be, folks, I'm just going to say this. It's not a secret. We have people that sit here in this auditorium every Sunday, every Sunday, who come in, sit, sing, listen, talk, visit, and leave, and don't serve anywhere. Don't say, well, I don't have any ability. No, you do. We just read about it. Peter said to all believers, you do have ability. You have a spiritual gift that God gave you to use. If you're not using that gift, you're not a good steward, and God will hold you accountable. I don't say that with anger and like, what's wrong with you? No, I say it because, folks, serving God is one of the most exciting things in the world. And when God uses you in somebody's life, it's like, wow. Look what God did. Look what he allowed me to do. It's not us, it's him. That's stewardship. To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And then he says this, verse 11. As he talks about it, verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. There's two ways that we can serve. There's two ways we can use our gifts. He says speaking. We can speak. You say, well, I'm, uh, Glenn, there's no way I could do what you're doing right up there. I couldn't get up front. I mean, when I get up front, I, I, I just, I can't. But you might be able to sit in a classroom and read a verse Amen. to five-year-olds. Or younger, or older. You have an ability somewhere. Some of those gifts are speaking gifts. And Peter says, if it, 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 it's, uh, verse uh, 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Listen, I'm up here this morning, and the mornings, I am not here to tell you what I think. I am here to speak the words of God. I'm here to tell you what the Bible says, not what I think or what I say. That's speaking. And then he goes on and he says, if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Serve with the strength God provides. See, we, many times we hear, oh, I, don't, I can't do anything. No, you can. Because you have a gift. You either have a speaking gift or a serving gift. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, we studied through that when we went through 1 Corinthians, or Romans 12 are two great sections in the Bible that you can look up and see what gifts are there, what gifts you may have. You have at least one. And folks, let me say it this way. Probably every one of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 fits within either speaking or serving. Amen. Check it out. Do a little study and see what you think. I think it's very interesting. Peter doesn't get in great detail, but he does say, hey, you can speak. That's a gift. You can serve. That's a gift. Either way, we serve in the strength that God gives. And then look how he wraps it up. He says, so that in all things, God may be praised. Wow. We don't, again, we don't do it for ourselves. We do it so that God is praised. Does that sound familiar from where we've been in 1 Peter? It should. 
It should take you right back to chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. When we've, we've referred to this verse often. Peter says to the believers, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, here it is, they may see your good deeds. What? That's your giftedness. That's your speaking or your serving. That's your doing as a steward. That they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day he visits us when he comes back again. Woohoo! Huh? See, Peter just not making stuff up. It all works together, and that's what he's saying. He's saying, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And here's like the doxology. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's it. So I have three quick questions for you. When we say, okay, so what now? Three quick questions. Number one, how are you living the will of God? How are you living out the will of God? Now, we didn't deal with the first six verses, but if you would look at verses one and two, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What attitude? The attitude that he was talking about in chapter three when we talked about Jesus suffering for us. You could go back to chapter 2 and verse 23 and 24. You could go back to chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And then we get it here. So arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. The same attitude as Christ who suffered. He's done with sin. You're saying, is that a guarantee that I don't ever sin again if I suffer? No. It would be nice. But what it is saying, there's a break with sin when we trust Christ. When you're willing to suffer, when you're willing to live for God, when you're willing to live differently in the midst of suffering, you know what the idea is? That, that evidence is a level of commitment for suffering and a willingness to suffer for God, for his work, that is going to cause you to say, you know what, I'm done with sin. Not that you won't ever sin again, but you've made a break and said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with that. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, that's you and I, but rather for the will of God. So my question about the will of God is simply, how are you living out the will of God? How are you living out the will? In light of the fact that Jesus' return is soon, how are you living out the will of God? Secondly, what are you thinking about and praying for? Peter said, you need to be sober and alert. You need to have clear spiritual thinking, level-headedness, spirit-directed thinking. What are you thinking about and praying for? Boy, Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. This is what Paul says, and do this. This is one of the texts I gave you earlier. He says, do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. He's talking about the end days. He said, it's time to wake up from your slumber. He's talking to the believers in the church at Rome. Wake up, he says, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We don't know when Jesus is coming, but we know it's closer than when you first got saved. Rather, he says, verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not Think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Do not think about. What's he say earlier? We looked at think like Jesus did. Have the same attitude that Jesus did. Third question. 
Are you anticipating Jesus coming? You know it's going to happen. That's anticipation. Something you know is going to happen. We know Jesus is coming. How are you living? If I was to ask for a show of hands, I'm not going to do that because you'll think I'm setting you up. I'm not setting you up. How many of you believe Jesus is coming again? Many of you would raise your hands. Okay, how are you living like you believe that? It's like the kid who's what kids are watching TV shows they shouldn't be watching, and they're sitting there, and all of a sudden, mom or dad comes into the room, right? Ever, you've, we've been there, right? Oh, oh, uh, 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 I, I was just, uh, I, I did, uh, oh, I didn't realize, uh, yeah, right. If we really believe Jesus is coming again, how do we live? We live differently. Let me close with this. So what if? What would happen if every one of us lived our lives anticipating that Jesus is coming back soon? What would happen if we lived that way? Imagine how serious we would be about doing the will of God. Imagine how serious we'd be about loving one another, about showing hospitality, about forgiving one another. Imagine how serious we'd be about serving, about using the gifts of speaking that God's given us, about using the gifts of service that God's given us. Recognize that we're going to give an account one day, and when Jesus comes, we're going to give an account. Not for our sin. How we've used our time for him. But imagine. What would happen if every one of us lived our lives anticipating that Jesus is coming back soon? How would you live differently tomorrow? What would be different when you got out of bed tomorrow morning? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's coming again. Thank you that he died on the cross to provide forgiveness for our sin. Thank you, Father, that you loved us and you've given us the ability to love one another. Oh, God, help us who know you today to love you and then to love one another because of that love. God, help us to be forgiving. Help us to forgive one another like Jesus has forgiven us. Help us to be willing to serve one another because you've given us the gifts to do it, the ability, the strength, the power, all that we need to serve you, to make a difference, to be effective. Oh, God. And I pray this morning that if there's someone here today who does not know Jesus, that you would cause them today, before they leave this building, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin so that they can be saved and made a child of God. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.